on this episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. We've always liked watching true crime shows, documentaries. Um, and one day uh, we kind of realized we, we love true crime. We love our city's history, but we did not really see anything out there that uh, joined the two. We started doing the research just casually online and found some of these little known stories that uh, we had never heard of. And from there, researched them and fleshed them out into the stories uh, that we have on the site now. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 91 of the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Before we get into this episode of the show, I want to take a moment to thank my guest from the last episode, Joe Hassan, the general manager of the Mohegan Sun Casino at Virgin Hotels Las Vegas. Joe and I chatted about his early days in casino management, the partnership between Mohegan Sun Gaming and Entertainment and Virgin Hotels, the challenges of opening a new casino during a global pandemic, and much more. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 90, Virgin Territory, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, here we go. On to the show. I've covered a lot of Las Vegas history on this podcast, but something I've never really taken a deep dive into are some of the true crime stories from the city's past. There's a lot of info out there about some of the more notorious cases, but my guests for this episode of the show like to focus on some of the lesser-known crime stories. Anthony Smith and his wife Megan are the creators of a very cool website called Mayhem in the Desert. Anthony and Megan are born and raised Las Vegans who are true crime junkies. And a couple of years ago, they took it upon themselves to start chronicling some of these extremely interesting tales from Vegas's past. Anthony and I talked about what it was like growing up in Las Vegas, what inspired him and Megan to create Mayhem in the Desert, their research and writing process, and some of their favorite stories. Please enjoy my conversation with Anthony Smith of mayhem in the desert well first off i just want to say congratulations on the website mayheminthedesert.com some very very cool stuff on this site i stumbled across it i'm not even 100 percent sure what it was i was looking for but it popped up in my google search and i clicked on it and i started reading some of the stories that you guys had on there and i thought this is amazing. I need to get these guys on my podcast. Oh, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, and we we love uh, hearing that kind of feedback, and uh, that's why we write it, uh, to let people know about uh, a little bit of the darker history of Las Vegas. We'll definitely do some digging into the website and learn a little bit more about it. But first, uh, I just want to find out about you guys. I always kind of like to learn a little bit about my guests. Um, you and your wife, Megan 
are a couple of those rare breeds, those rare unicorns who are actually born and raised in Las Vegas. This is always a fun question I like to ask of of folks like you guys. Um, what was it like growing up in the city of Las Vegas? Yes, it's uh, yeah, it's true. Uh, we were born and raised, um, and it is not too different, I would imagine, from growing up in most other places. Um, but as Megan likes to put it, it's like having a giant amusement park in your backyard. Um, and one of the other differences is as a kid, um, for different family functions, you're probably going to the casino uh, for bowling or for movies or for the restaurant. Um, but not too different. Um, one thing uh, I do want to note, uh, the casino episode you did reminded me of it i went to uh, school uh, at our lady of las vegas where they filmed a few of the scenes there uh the one at the baseball diamond there oh very cool yeah and in fact they that baseball diamond wasn't there before the uh production crew came they built it and donated it to the school after the fact and then one of our teachers you may recall a scene with a nun uh, that was actually Mrs. Wilson, our second grade teacher at Our Lady of Las Vegas, that they uh, had do a little role there. <laughs> oh, wow. Very cool. Um, and so yourself and Megan, you met in high school. You guys were high school sweethearts? Yeah, we were. We uh, met in high school, uh, went on a few dates, uh, went our separate ways, and then we reconnected uh, a few years ago and picked it right back up. And so what do you guys do when you're not working on mayhem in the desert? Like I know with a lot of people who are content creators and bloggers with, with stuff like this, like I know myself, like this podcast, it takes up a lot of time, but it is a, a passion project. I have a, a real life and a real job outside of this. Um, what is it that yourself and Megan do uh, as in your quote unquote real life? Well, I'm a lawyer for my day job uh, and Las Vegas being the divorce capital of the world, I do uh, family law. You're kept very busy then, I'm sure. Very busy. Uh, last time I looked at it, we had something on the order of 40,000 uh, divorce cases filed here in uh, Clark County. Wow. Just in one year. <laughs> in one year? In one year, yes. <laughs> what you're saying then is those quickie weddings don't always work out. The lights come on and the magic goes away. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I think that's the case. <laughs> um, and then outside of that, um, Megan finds and sells vintage items uh, at local thrift stores. And then together, we love movies. So that's one of our favorite pastimes. And based on the work that you guys are doing with this Mayhem in the Desert website, I am guessing that the two of you are massive true crime junkies. Would that be uh, an accurate assessment? Yeah, that's an accurate statement. Um, we've always liked watching true crime shows documentaries um and one day uh we kind of realized we we love true crime we love our city's history but we did not really see anything out there that uh, joined the two and so that then was the genesis if you will of mayhem in the desert was it yeah we started doing the research just casually online and found some of these little known stories that uh we had never heard of and from there researched them and fleshed them out into the stories uh, that we have on the site now. So how long have you guys been doing Mayhem in the Desert? Uh, this year marks two years. Uh, Nevada Day is on Halloween, uh, October 31st. And so we officially launched the site on Nevada Day in 2019. And so you mentioned that this was kind of just born out of your own interests and, and your own interest in Vegas history and seeing that there wasn't really a, a niche or or 
anything like this out there. Um, where do you guys come up with the stories? I mean, other than just sort of randomly stumbling across something on the internet, um, where do you guys come up with the, the ideas for, for stories to include on the site? Well, some of it is just growing up here. Um, we would remember uh, a news story from our youth of a, a particular crime uh, that hadn't really been mentioned uh, in the years since. And then both of our families uh, have lived here for quite some time. Uh, mine moved here in the 60s, but Megan has me beat. Uh, hers came here around 1915. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. So we have uh, quite a few family stories about um, crimes that uh, sort of faded into the background over the decades that we then dug back up. Any um, former law enforcement members in the family that were able to help you out with any of these stories? Uh, not in law enforcement, more just, um, you know, from being around town and uh, coming up in conversation. So, And I think that's one of the really cool things about your website and about the stories that are on there. I mean, everybody knows the the Vegas history, the big crime stories, right? The mob stuff, the organized crime stuff, um, even some of the the murders that have happened in Las Vegas, like the Tupac Shakur murder, things like that. But you guys, the stories that you have on here are really interesting in that they are they're quite obscure. They're not necessarily big nationally or world known stories, but they are super interesting. Well, that's that's sort of our goal, um, because the like you said, the well-known stories like what you might see in Casino uh, or the Ted Binion trial, um, those those have been uh, thoroughly gone over. So we were trying to find some of the uh, items that really had not been explored or haven't been looked at in quite some time. Uh, and we tried to where we can um, see what the crimes say about Las Vegas history or about the particular era that they occurred in. I just want to talk a little bit about the research that you guys do to put these stories together, because there is way more here than just going on Google or Wikipedia and and doing some some simple basic research. There's some really, really deep dives here. Um, what are some of the resources that you guys have at your disposal that you've been able to take advantage of? Well, probably one of our most valuable is the uh, Clark County Library District has archived uh, the local newspapers back to the 1920s. Uh, and we even have some from the town's founding in 1905. Uh, so it takes a lot of searching, um, but those are usually the starting point. So we can find information from around the time. Uh, then we use publicly available records. Um, census data is helpful. Um, uh, death certificate records, that sort of thing. Um, and then just generally online research to locate, um, you know, maybe a book where there's an obscure paragraph or two about the case and can get us a little more information. Something I've run into in putting together some Vegas history episodes and some research based episodes is occasionally I find there's contradictory information or stuff that just doesn't match up, particularly when it comes to the organized crime stuff, because, of course, as they say, um, the mob generally doesn't keep records. Um, I've run into issues where I've really just had problems uh, correlating information to get a, a straight straight information about, say, a date or, or a location or a particular people involved, things like that. Have you run into any of that in, in trying to put together your research? 
Uh, a little bit. And you're, you're right about the organized crime cases. Those, um, not a lot of folks willing to talk uh, at the time that the events are occurring or even well after the fact. Um, so not so much with um, conflicting dates or items like that. Um, more just dot, dot, dot is kind of how I would put it. Uh, so one of our uh, most fascinating characters that we write about is uh, Benny Binion, uh, the founder and owner of the Horseshoe downtown. Uh, and there's at least two uh, crimes around Vegas that he was potentially linked to. Uh, the police, the FBI uh, have strong inklings that Benny Binion may have uh, called the shots. But the key players involved were tight lipped enough that you can't make that final conclusion exactly. Which can lead to some very interesting writing, I would imagine. It does, yes. So over the course of the two years that you guys have been putting together uh, the site, how many stories have you compiled? I mean, there's a ton of stuff on there. Altogether, and we have it uh, divided into uh, two types of stories. So we have long-form ones uh, for people that want to take a deeper dive into uh, a particular uh, story. Then we have uh, shorter stories if you just want to, you know, find out what's going on in maybe three or four paragraphs. Uh, so the long form ones, which run about 10 to 20 pages, we have about 15 of those. Uh, and then for shorter stories, we have about 45 of those on the site. That's amazing. That is a lot of work. So on average, I mean, how long when you're putting together one of those long form stories, that's 20 pages long, how long does it take you guys to put one of those together? Uh, that can be as long as uh, eight weeks from Coming up with the idea, doing the research, coming up with the drafts, and then uh, locating some photos or other items we can use uh, for copy to bring the story to life a little bit more. And I would imagine, too, I mean, you guys are facing the extra challenge that I don't necessarily have when it comes to um, things like photos. I mean, I, in a podcast, when I do a, a Vegas history podcast, a long form um, production podcast, things like that. I'm able to use sound effects and vocal effects and music to, you know, create the mood or paint the picture in your mind, as they like to say. But I mean, you guys, you've got that extra bit of research when it comes to um, having to search out photos and newspaper articles and things like that. I would imagine that creates a, a, an even bigger challenge for you. It does. And we want to create something uh, original as well. So uh, sort of the uh, form that we've stumbled into, uh, and because we use so much newspaper archive for our research, uh, is to find some key uh, items in the news coverage uh, and then put those together into a collage to show how the local press was covering the story at the time. And time-wise or era-wise, if you will, you guys span everything from way, way back to uh, relatively current. That's correct. Um, we go all the way from the town's founding in 1905 when you had uh, a lot of Old West uh, sort of stories, uh, saloon shootouts and bar brawls and uh, that type of thing um, through the mob era, which is always very fascinating. Uh, and then into the modern era uh, as well with some of the um, uh, crimes that uh, really, I think you'd see in any sort of big city, but are nevertheless uh, very fascinating. And there's often a Vegas angle to them as well. All right, let's get into the part of our conversation that I've been looking forward to the most. Let's talk about um, your guys' favorite 
crime stories that you've had the pleasure to put together. If we were to set up, say, uh, top three favorite stories that you guys have have worked on and researched and put on the website, uh, what would those be? Well, the one, and we've already mentioned it, uh, is definitely Benny Binion. Um, And he actually... um, my wife's uh, father worked at the horseshoe uh, as a dealer for quite some time and had nothing but nice things to say about Benny Binion. Uh, very generous, very affable. Um, so there was that side to him, but there certainly was a more dangerous side to Benny Binion. Uh, and that's part of why we like him, because Vegas can be a town of extremes. Uh, and I think Benny really captures that. Uh, and so two of the stories that we've written about him uh, one was about a uh, very unfortunate cab driver uh, by the name of Marvin Shumati in the 1960s that uh, he'd been a low-level crook, uh, and he fell into uh, the orbit of one of Benny Binion's enforcers, uh, a fellow by the name of Tom Handley. Um, now, Shumati, in the course of uh, these interactions, uh, his son, who was in his early 20s, befriended Ted Binion, who was about the same age. And Shimadi from there uh, developed this plot, uh, get-rich-quick scheme, that he could use his son's connections with Ted Binion uh, to kidnap the young Ted Binion uh, and then hold him for ransom. Now, he told this to a few of his buddies at a bar that he frequented uh, on Flamingo and Paradise, uh, and they apparently were game at the beginning. Uh, At a certain point, Shimadi came to the conclusion that the only way to get away with the crime uh, would be to murder Ted Binion. Now, once he told his friends that, one of them got cold feet and reached out to an associate of Benny Binion uh, to inform him that this Shimadi character uh, was involved in a plot against his son. Benny Binion said, thank you very much. Here's a few hundred dollars and you have 24 hours to get out of town. Uh, that gentleman uh, wisely took that advice and moved to the East Coast. Uh, Marvin Shimadi, for his part, after Benny Binion had been tipped off, he arrived at that same bar where he'd hatched the plot. Uh, this is in late uh, December of 1967, but he never made it inside. Uh, Tom Hanley, it's believed, uh, met him outside the bar and told him they were going for a drive to the edge of town. Uh, the few days later is when they found Marvin Shimadi's body uh, at the base of Sunrise Mountain. Uh, he, in typical organized crime fashion, had been shot once in the chest uh, and then one final shot uh, behind the ear. Uh, local press alluded to a um, well-known gambling uh, executive potentially being involved in the plot, uh, but no one was ever arrested, no one ever charged. Another fascinating story with Benny Binion involved the uh, first resident FBI agent in Las Vegas, a gentleman by the name of Bill Coulthard. And he liked Las Vegas so much, he retired from the FBI uh, and started working as an attorney in town. Uh, He married into a a family of a wealthy casino executive uh, and became a fairly well-known businessman in his own right. Now, through those dealings, Bill Coulthard ended up getting a 35% ownership interest in the land that the horseshoe sits on. So Benny Binion, he didn't own the land. He had to lease it. And the lease was up for renewal in the early 1970s. 
Uh, and as you might expect, the straight-laced former FBI agent wasn't inclined to renew the lease for this well-known uh, gambler and fellow that had a reputation for violence. Uh, Benny Binion did his best to negotiate, uh, made uh, uh, substantial uh, monetary offers to uh, accomplish a renewal of the lease. But when that didn't work, um, one day Bill Coulthard got into his car in downtown Vegas, uh, leaving his law office. And the explosion could apparently be heard all throughout uh, downtown. Uh, it killed uh, Mr. Coldhart instantly. Uh, the interest in the land that the horseshoe sat on went to some other individuals who then decided, uh, probably wisely, to renew the lease for an additional 100 years. Now, again, that one, they strongly suspected Benny Binion and Tom Hanley as being the uh, trigger man behind the bombing, but they could never uh, make a firm link. And I'm guessing that, as you said earlier, anybody that would have been involved was not willing to make that firm link either. <laughs> no, they weren't. Uh, well, and Vegas is a town of uh, characters, uh, as you might know. And the lead detective on the case uh, was named Beecher's Avant. Whenever he would see Tom Hanley around town, he would yell at him uh, from across the street. Even I'm going to put you away for the cold hard killing. Wow. Uh, apparently was never successful. What's another true crime story that you guys have really enjoyed putting together for the website? Well, one of the others is um, from the old West days of Las Vegas. Um, and it gives a little bit of an idea of what a frontier uh, town it was. Uh, there was a young child um, from the Romero household that was walking to school. Uh, Las Vegas maybe had 800 people in it uh, at the time. So very small town, uh, but the child never came home. So the mother, uh, quite frantic, uh, enlisted the help of the local sheriff and some other townspeople. They fanned out uh, and they luckily found the girl um, before any harm had come to her. And a newcomer to town uh, who worked at a local bakery, uh, his name was Walter Smith. Uh, he was arrested by the sheriff and immediately brought to the one room courthouse in downtown Las Vegas. Uh, the presiding judge, uh, Judge Lillis questioned uh, Walter Smith, and then at the conclusion said, well, we don't have enough evidence to try her for kidnapping, but you've got two hours to get out of town. And Sheriff Sam Gay, who was a large, burly former security officer for the railroad before becoming sheriff, told uh, Walter Smith, you got 15 minutes to get out of my sight. Uh, and then he apparently was never heard from in uh, Southern Nevada again. It's beginning to feel like this whole tactic of telling people to get out of town on your own or else we're going to take you out of town. And if we take you out of town, there's going to be a problem it is quite a common thing that was done in the city of Las Vegas, whether it was uh, way back in the old West or during the, the organized crime days. Well, and I think that's a, an interesting through thread that it may still go on today, but probably became less frequent with the uh, corporate control here in Las Vegas. Just slightly less free. It still happens, just slightly less frequently. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, um, the distinction between the mob days and the corporate days here in Las Vegas, uh, because another really well-known casino executive uh, had their child kidnapped in the early 90s, Steve Wynn. Uh, only in that uh, situation, the kidnappers did uh, release his daughter once he paid the ransom, uh, and he went and got the FBI involved. They tracked the kidnappers down once they started trying to buy sports cars and uh, put them away for quite some time. 
But I think that might have been handled slightly differently if you rewound it uh, two or three decades. Yeah, no kidding. And you'd think that these guys, the, these kidnapper guys, had never uh, seen a, a mob movie or seen a, a crime movie before. You pull off the big heist, you get the money, you disappear. You don't start buying flashy sports cars or or big houses or fur coats or stuff like that. I mean, come on, guys. I know. You'd think they'd learn, but nevertheless. All right, Matthew, how about sharing... Um, uh, one more of your guys' uh, favorite crime stories from Mayhem in the Desert. Yeah, well, uh, another uh, one that's always fascinated us, and it's really the neighborhood, um, Naked City, which is uh, right by the stratosphere. Um, and it was it got its name back in the 50s and 60s because it's largely um, smaller homes and apartments. Um, but industry workers, um, dealers, uh, showgirls, cocktail waitresses, a lot of them lived in the neighborhood in the older days of Vegas. And apparently the cocktail waitresses and showgirls were known for uh, sunbathing topless around the pools in that area, hence the name Naked City. Uh, now, as the town grew and more uh, subdivisions popped up, those folks ended up moving away from Naked City. Uh, and the, the neighborhood was not uh, as well kept up from that point forward uh, through the 80s and the 90s. Uh, and then there was really a, probably one of the most tragic cases we, we wrote about. Um, a young toddler uh, by the name of Arthur Williams uh, was out playing uh, with his sister uh, in front of their home in 1985. An unknown individual, uh, apparently for no motive, no reason that the police could ever discern, uh, just walked up and uh, murdered the young boy and ran away. Um, now, they set up the tip lines, uh, but unfortunately, they never uh, were able to identify a, a suspect involved in the case. Uh, and then if you look at the news reports shortly after the murder, families in the neighborhood said, we're, we're leaving, we're finding a different place to live, which contributed to the uh, decline of the naked city. Uh, now, there have been some hope that when the stratosphere opened in the 90s, that that could lead to some improvements in the condition uh, in the naked city. But aside from employees of the strat occasionally volunteering to remove graffiti and do some other work in the neighborhood. Um, there's not been any kind of concerted effort to improve it. Um, but you have uh, a lot of Vegas landmarks that sit right on the side of it. Uh, one of them is the golden steer, which is the oldest steakhouse in Las Vegas and was known for being a uh, mob hangout uh, during the sixties and seventies. And then of course the stratosphere. Yeah, I've actually had the uh, the pleasure of having a meal at the Golden Steer a couple of years ago for a, a birthday dinner when I was in the city. I wanted to go for a steak dinner, so I reached out to my my local Vegas friends who all put the Golden Steer at the top of their list. So we went and and did that. Had dinner sitting in uh, in Joe DiMaggio's booth, which was very very cool. And I'm somewhat familiar with the Naked City area in that um, I have been warned numerous times to not wander around that area uh, at any point uh, on my own as a as a tourist to the city. Yes, and that's probably sound advice. Um, but like any neighborhood, of course, um, you have all sorts of folks uh, living there. And um, it would be nice if, uh, you know, there could be some dedicated resources to uh, improving the condition of the naked city. Uh, and we've seen that uh, with downtown. Um, 
if you look back 20 years ago uh, and then look today at the, the arts district they have there, I mean, it's night and day. Oh, yeah, definitely. No, no kidding. Um, one of the other sections that I did want to bring up briefly uh, on the website is the Lost Women of Las Vegas section. And this is uh, looks to be like it's a work in progress on the site. Um, what was the inspiration behind wanting to put these particular stories into their own section on the site? Well, there was an article that we stumbled across in the Las Vegas Review Journal from 1984, I think. Uh, and it detailed um, several dozen cases of women that had been uh, either abducted or uh, murdered, but there was no um, no viable suspects. And so we thought, um, you know, that's an interesting uh, topic to go ahead and look into and see if, with some hindsight, uh, we can maybe find some new information about what happened um, and to explore is there something about Las Vegas itself that um, contributed to that? And a city like Las Vegas has such a a transient population between the tourists who are coming in and going out on such a regular basis. And then in, I know various stories that I've read and, and even people that I've spoken with Las Vegas is that city where everybody kind of comes to follow their dreams. You know, life's not going all that well. So I'm going to pack up my life and I'm going to go to Las Vegas because I'm going to get a job and things are going to be great. And of course, as we know, it doesn't always turn out like that. So I would imagine there's probably a lot of um, very sad stories from this where it's it's basically just people that have been swallowed up by the city. Well, and I think that is a lot of it. And I would imagine that complicates the ability to solve the crime. If you have someone, particularly the victim and the uh, the assailant, who have short ties to the city, um, there's not a lot of leads to go ahead and track down uh, to try and find a motive or uh, the person that committed the crime. Uh, and it's interesting because one of the cases that stands out to us um, in that section that we wrote about is, and it relates to um, sex trafficking issues that we do have in the city, um, were the uh, three women uh, were found buried out near the Las Vegas wash um, in 1996. Uh, they never were able to determine the identity of the women. Um, other than uh, that their ethnicity was Asian and that they were between the ages of 20 and 50 years old. Uh, but the FBI ran it through national databases, uh, no links, no one reported them missing. Uh, and so the best theory that investigators could come up with, uh, and this was a coordinated effort between Las Vegas police and Los Angeles police, is that some organized crime uh, group had lured these women uh, from overseas and probably with promises of work um, on a better life here. And once they were brought to America, there was a network of massage parlors that were engaged in illegitimate uh, sex work where these women were then forced into a life of prostitution and investigators believe that when they bulked at that, uh, that they were then killed and, um, sadly disposed of in the desert. Um, and that one stuck with us because it's just so tragic to think that you don't even have the identity for these women. And, um, 
clearly they have family somewhere that must still be wondering what happened. Um, and so there, you know, there is some hope that with that crime occurring in the nineties, that, um, the suspects may still be out there. You may still have advancements in technology, um, or information that's found that could, uh, lead to someone being held responsible, but the nature of that crime and the fact there was no accountability that certainly stuck with us. Very, very sad indeed. Um, something I, I guess related to that, and you mentioned about how this stuck with you, having worked in the media myself and worked in newsrooms, I know how tough it can be to be dealing with this kind of stuff, dark, depressing, um, very difficult content on a, on a consistent basis. Do you find that you guys, you really kind of have to, after you do one of these stories, if it's particularly dark or particularly difficult, you have to step away from things for a while, or are you able to just sort of, uh, compartmentalize your emotions and your thoughts about this and just sort of put all of that in a box and leave it until the next time you have to go there? Well, and th that is correct. I think there is some compartmentalization that goes on. And the approach we take with the stories, I think, also helps. Um, so for that um, that story we just discussed of the, the three women uh, that were murdered and uh, with no known suspects, um, we tried to tell their story because so far their story had only been told in a few snippets in the local press. Um, and so we find some value in that. And um, telling it in a way that's respectful and that hopefully can lead to some resolution of the case. So that certainly does help. So I guess the next question then is what is in store for the future of Mayhem in the Desert? Are there any particular stories that you guys are, are researching and working on right now? Anything you'd like to share as far as uh, what's upcoming for the site? Well, we have uh, plenty of more stories in the works, uh, both long form and short form. Um, just to tease a few of them, uh, one that we are working on is a very Vegas story. Uh, in the 1990s, um, uh, Dana McKay, he was one of the pioneering Elvis impersonators. Uh, he, in fact, had worked on Elvis's Vegas show and had become so close to the king uh, that Elvis's estate donated some of uh, his suits to him uh, that he then used in his own impersonations. Um, now, in the early 90s, uh, Dana was coming home with his girlfriend, who had been a former Miss Nevada, and unknown assailants uh, murdered both of them in their west uh, side Las Vegas home. Uh, nothing was taken, so robbery doesn't appear to be a motive. Uh, and not to go too deep into it, but it looks like the motive could have been related to a business dispute about a contract over planting palm trees on the Las Vegas Strip. So random. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, now, one of the other ones, uh, a little lesser known mob story, uh, is a look at the Crazy Horse 2 Strip Club. And that had longtime mob links. Uh, in fact, uh, Tony Albanese, who owned it uh, in, from the late 70s until his untimely death in the early 80s, um, that's something that we are exploring. Um, and then the Crazy Horse 2 uh, continued to um, have a bit of a notorious history because it was the subject of the federal operation G-Sting. <laughs> 
in 2003, where several Clark County commissioners were all taking bribes uh, from uh, uh, associates or uh, people affiliated with the strip club to try to remove a ban on no-touch dancing in Las Vegas. My wife is listening to this episode of the podcast. I'm completely unfamiliar with Crazy Horse 2. I've never been there. I've never seen it. Never even heard of the place. <laughs> I've only ever driven past it uh, going over the DI arterial. <laughs> um, Anthony, if people want to find uh, Mayhem in the Desert, you guys are, are quite active on social media and, of course, the website. Um, how can they go about uh, seeking you guys out? Yeah, well, our, the website uh, is pretty straightforward. It is mayheminthedesert.com. And then Mayhem in the Desert is also our handle on uh, Instagram, TikTok, and Reddit. And then on Twitter, we're at Vegas True Crime. Excellent stuff. Anthony, thank you so much for jumping on and chatting today. I uh, really do appreciate it and uh, look forward to what's in store for Mayhem in the Desert. Well, thank you so much. We love the podcast and we'll have anything that's focused on Las Vegas. So I really appreciate you having us here. Once again, if you want to start digging into the stories that Anthony and Megan have put together, visit the website at mayheminthedesert.com and be sure to follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit at Mayhem in the Desert or on Twitter at Vegas True Crime. And of course, all of these links are available in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. And that wraps up another episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas, or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. The Jeff Does Vegas podcast is a Walker New Media production. 